You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in October of 2023 with episode 451 of the Corbett Report podcast. I read Yuval Noah Harari's book, so you don't have to. And exactly as you would gather from that title, yes, in the increasingly lengthy and illustrious tradition of previous editions of this podcast including episode 412, I Read the Great Narrative, So You Don't Have To, episode 418, I Read Bill Gates' New Book, So You Don't Have To, and episode 439 of this podcast, I Read Richard Haas's New Book, So You Don't Have To. Yes, today I'm going to pre- present to you a, a brief review-slash-summarization of Yuval Noah Harari's 2016 tome, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Now, generally, I would say something along the lines of, well, if you've been living under a rock for the past several years, perhaps you don't know about Yuval Noah Harari, but I would say, specifically in the past few years, even if you were living under that proverbial rock, you would have heard of Yuval Noah Harari. You you know, that guy. Under the Skin is back, and look who's with me. It's Yuval Noah Harari. Hello. Hey, good to be here again. Isn't it wonderful that we've found a way of communicating with each other in the form of podcasts? Uh, I think it is. And is there some love between us now? I think so. I feel love. I feel. I look at you, I look at your eyes, I think you're a beautiful person. We need to reinvent democracy for this new era in which humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. How does the baboon do it? The baboon does not take out a pen and a piece of paper or calculator and start calculating probabilities. No, the entire body of the baboon is the calculator. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. Again, I think that the biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decades, will be what to do with all these useless people. I don't think we have an economic model to, for that. My best guess, which is just a guess, is that uh, food will not be a problem. Uh, with that kind of technology, you will be able to produce food for, to feed everybody. The problem is more uh, boredom. And how, what to do with them, and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless? My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games. Yeah, that Yuval Noah Harari. As I say, I am sure that most of the people in my regular audience have seen or heard something 
from Harari over the past few years, even if they didn't know it was him or don't recognize the name, you have seen this court gesture, gesture of the World Economic Forum crowd. Um, I, I, one would say Klaus Schwab's mini-me, or spirit animal there, who gets up at the World Economic Forum in Davos and other places to give his speeches about the end of Homo sapiens and hackable humans and how we're going to placate the useless the useless eaters? Oh, he didn't quite say that. Um, the meaningless people with their worthless lives by drugging them up and giving them computer games. Yay! Okay, Russell Brand endorsed, so he must be a good guy. He's a beautiful person, as Russell says. Well, if you are, if you feel like you know exactly what Yuval Noah Harari is pushing, and you get, uh, he's just kind of a transhumanist, and I get, I get what he's pushing, and you don't, you're not really interested in what he actually has written, then fine, good enough, see you later, you can turn off this video now. If you are interested, let's start getting into this book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, because it actually doesn't quite go I think, in the way that you're expecting it to. There are a few twists and turns along the way to end up at a conclusion that is, well, an interesting conclusion. So, if you're interested, if you're along for the ride, let's just dig in, shall we? So, let's start with the About the Book page, which is a very handy summarization, which notes that Yuval Noah Harari, author of the bestselling Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, envisions a not-too-distant world in which we face a new set of challenges. In Homo Deus, he examines our future with his trademark blend of science, history, philosophy, and every discipline in between. Homo Deus explores the projects, dreams, and nightmares that will shape the 21st century, from overcoming death to creating artificial life. It asks the fundamental questions. Where do we go from here? And how will we protect this fragile world from our own destructive powers? This is the next stage of evolution. This is Homo Deus. And here's some bullet points. War is obsolete. You are more likely to commit suicide than to be killed in conflict. Famine is disappearing. You are at more risk of obesity than starvation. Death is just a technical problem. Equality is out, but immortality is in. What does our future hold? Okay, well, an intriguing teaser for the book, essentially. So, okay, well, what does our future hold, Yuval? Don't leave us hanging. All right, let's get into it. Chapter one, which is entitled, as you would expect from this World Economic Forum minion, The New Human Agenda. But, oh, oh, don't worry. He's not talking about, like, that kind of, like, Agenda 2030 agenda. He's talking about... As he explains in the opening paragraph, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up, stretching its limbs and rubbing its eyes. Remnants of some awful nightmare are still drifting across its mind. There was something with barbed wire and huge mushroom clouds. Oh well, it was just a bad dream. Going to the bathroom, humanity washes its face, examines its wrinkles in the mirror, makes a cup of coffee, and opens the diary. Let's see what's on the agenda today. Oh, like that kind of agenda. You see, it's just kind of like what you do every day, guys. It's not like planning for the future of humanity, right? Question mark. Well, it doesn't take long for Yuval to start unfolding that very plan for the future of humanity type agenda. And he starts by setting the table by talking about where humanity is at the dawn of the third millennium. Um, first, there is a big section uh, about how humanity is subverting the age-old struggles of mankind against starvation, against disease, against war. Um, basically, he says, most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in fate, famine, plague, and war. 
And he goes on to say, essentially, this is the Steven Pinker, everything is awesome narrative that is pushed a lot these days. For the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than from infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. You know, awesome. Okay, so what problems are we facing then? Everything seems to be getting better. Um, he elaborates on this in this lengthy opening chapter of the book in which um, he goes on a, an elaborate diversion um, through all three of these subjects, but specifically on the infectious disease front, which is interesting. Obviously, again, this being written in 2016. So hmm, I, I wonder how this would be rewritten if there was a future edition of this book published. But anyway, um, he goes on to talk about how pandemics are becoming less and less of a threat to humanity as our medical technology and understanding start to improve. And uh, he specifically cites SARS-1, of course. SARS, for example, initially raised fears of a new Black Death, but eventually ended with death, the death of less than 1,000 people worldwide. Well, you can imagine he would be pushing a different propaganda line if he was writing those that section today. But anyway, that being said, it isn't long before he gets to the big, the main, one of the main agendas of the book, um, specifically positing that humans are essentially displacing deities by conquering more and more of the domain of the formerly religious and supernatural, including death itself. How exactly do humans die? Medieval fairy tales depicted death as a figure in a hooded black cloak, his hand gripping a large scythe. A man lives his life, worrying about this and that, running here and there, when suddenly the grim reaper appears before him, taps him on the shoulder with a bony finger, and says, Come. And the man implores, No, please, wait just a year, a month, a day. But the hooded figure hisses, No, you must come now. And this is how we die. In reality, however, Humans don't die because a figure in a black cloak taps them on the shoulder, or because God decreed it, or because mortality is an essential part of some great cosmic plan. Humans always die due to some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping blood. The main artery is clogged by fatty deposits. Cancerous cells spread in the liver. Germs multiply in the lungs. And what is responsible for all these technical problems? other technical problems. The heart stops pumping blood because not enough oxygen reaches the heart muscle. Cancerous cells spread because a chance genetic mutation rewrote their instructions. Germs settled in my lungs because somebody sneezed on the subway. Nothing metaphysical about it. It is all technical problems. And every technical problem has a technical solution. We don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. If, traditionally, death was the speciality of priests and theologians, now the engineers are taking over. Death! Pshaw, that's it's a minor technical glitch. We'll, we'll find a way around it eventually, right? Yeah, hmm. you, you can tell where this is going, but in case you can't, yes, he is talking about essentially we're going to move beyond everything that we thought we knew about life and 
the universe and everything, and especially what we think we know about ourselves. Yes, we're going to upgrade the species. Homo sapiens is about to turn into something else entirely. What? Well, I'm glad you ask. Get ready for the sick title reveal. Though the details are therefore obscure, we can nevertheless be sure about the general direction of history. In the 21st century, the third big project of humankind will be to acquire for us divine powers of creation and destruction, and upgrade Homo sapiens into Homo Deus. This third project obviously subsumes the first two projects, and is fueled by them. We want the ability to re-engineer our bodies and minds in order, above all, to escape old age, death, and misery. But, once we have it, who knows what else we might do with such ability. So we may well think of the new human agenda as consisting really of only one project, with many branches, attaining divinity. If this sounds unscientific or downright eccentric, it is because people often misunderstand the meaning of divinity. Divinity isn't a vague metaphysical quality, and it isn't the same as omnipotence. When speaking of upgrading humans into gods, think more in terms of Greek gods or Hindu devas rather than the omnipotent biblical sky father. Our descendants would still have their foibles, kinks, and limitations, just as Zeus and Indra had theirs, but they could love, hate, create, and destroy on a much grander scale than us. And there it is, yes, Homo Deus, as in we are going to become gods, I tell you. Well, not god, not like god-god, but like the, you know, like the Greek gods or what have you, with their own personalities and foibles and quirks that just happen to have supernatural abilities, but not necessarily omnipotence, etc. And he goes, he goes on at some length about that. And I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about the gods, you know, like we're going to be like that. So essentially like tr children with incredible powers or something along those lines. Um, and then he goes on to say, okay, so you got that everybody? The real human agenda is attaining divinity. Okay, got it. Thank you, Yuval. So uh, in fact, it's already happening. He goes on to point out this isn't an on-off switch, it's a sliding scale, and we've already taken the first steps along that path. The fondle slab that you have in your pocket is part of those first baby steps towards becoming Homo Deus. So the obvious question, as Yuval puts it in one of the subheads in this chapter, can someone please hit the brakes? Obviously, we're all concerned about where things are going when we start hearing people talking about this technological upgrading of the species. Can someone hit the brakes? You'll never guess what his answer to this question is. Oh, wait, no. You'll totally guess. The answer is no. No one can hit the brakes. Because as he says, firstly, nobody knows where the brakes are. And secondly, if we somehow succeed in hitting the brakes, our economy will collapse along with our society. So, you know, don't even... First, you can't do it. No one knows how to do it. And even if you could, you don't want to. So don't even think about it. We're heading towards Homo Deus, and there ain't nothing you're going to do about it. Na 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 na. Um, but relax, guys. As he goes on to state, this isn't some inevitable transhuman dystopia that he's talking about. He's just letting us know what our choices are so that we can make informed decisions about where we're heading or something like that. Anyway, after a very lengthy dis uh, diversion about grass salons and the history thereof, we finally arrive at part one, 
Homo sapiens conquers the world. Yes, that entire opening chapter, 100-page lengthy opening chapter, was just a preamble of sorts, I guess. And we finally hit part one. Homo sapiens conquers the world. What is the difference between humans and all other animals? How did our species conquer the world? And is Homo sapiens a superior life form or just the local bully? Okay, all right. So... In this chapter, he talks about the Anthropocene, uh, uh, that is the technological era in which human life is now the main driver of the environment. He talks about the Garden of Eden, he talks about factory farming and animal cruelty, and the recognition of animal sentience by governments in New Zealand and Quebec. Um, then he gets to what we've all been waiting for, the baboon body calculator explanation. So in a nutshell, he says that uh, humans are algorithms that produce not cups of tea, like you might get from a vending machine, but copies of themselves. And the algorithms controlling vending machines work through mechanical gears and electric circuits, but the algorithms controlling humans work through sensations, emotions, and thoughts. And exactly the same kind of algorithms control pigs, baboons, otters, and chickens. Consider, for example, the following survival problem. A baboon spots some bananas hanging on a tree but also notices a lion lurking nearby. Should the baboon risk his life for those bananas? So essentially he goes on to elaborate how the baboon is using algorithms to do all these complex calculations about the risk-reward of going for the bananas. Um, but these algorithms aren't being... Uh, these calculations aren't being experienced like, you know, like with a pen and paper. No, they're being experienced as emotions, as fear, as excitement, as hunger, etc. And then, then we get to the part we've really been waiting, waiting for. Quote, Rather, the baboon's entire body is the calculator. End quote. Yuval Noah Harari, 2016. Wonderful. All right. Why, why do I get the image of Klaus and the gang sitting backstage at Davos chatting about baboon body calculators? Anyway... Let's remove that thought from her mind. Okay, you know, he goes on. Agricultural revolution, blah, blah, blah. Scientific revolution, yada, yada, yada. You have no soul, etc., etc. No one understands consciousness, and so on and so forth. Clever Hans, the horse who could count, etc., etc. But now we finally get to the meat of this. What really sets humans apart is our ability to create and adhere to imagined orders, i.e. storytelling. Yes, gods are stories. The nation is a story. Corporations are stories. These stories define and rule our world and affect, bring things into effect in the real world itself. And in order to give you an idea of what he's talking about here and to conceptualize this, he... he posits two fictional stories, one of a young man in 12th century England who heeds the Pope's call to go to the Holy Land to rid it of the infidels. He's going to join the crusade, and his family laud him, and his community celebrates him, and everyone thinks, oh, he's so noble and brave and wonderful, and he's bringing honor to our community. Um, but contrast that with a young man, say, in 21st century England, who suddenly decides, I'm going to the Holy Land to rid it of the infidels, he would immediately, of course, be put in a straitjacket and sent to the nearest institution as a mental patient because that's not what we do, right? So, what has changed? What has actually changed? Not, not humans, not the human species itself, not the physical reality of the world. No, the imagined order that we have overlaid on top of nature in the natural world is what has changed. So that what 
was laudable and wonderful and totally comprehensible in the 12th century is not even thinkable in the 21st century. So, having set that table, we finally arrive at part two. Homo sapiens gives meaning to the world. What kind of world did humans create? How did humans become convinced that they not only control the world, but also give it meaning? And how did humanism, the worship of humankind, become the most important religion of all? Good questions, Yuval. How are you going to answer them? Well, you get the gist from the opening. Animals such as wolves and chimpanzees live in a dual reality. On the one hand, they are familiar with objective entities outside them, such as trees, rocks, and rivers. On the other hand, they are aware of subjective experiences within them, such as fear, joy, and desire. Sapiens, in contrast, live in triple-layered reality. In addition to trees, rivers, fears, and desires, the sapiens world also contains stories about money, gods, nations, and corporations. As history unfolded, the impact of gods, nations, and corporations grew at the expense of rivers, fears, and desires. There are still many rivers in the world, and people are still motivated by their fears and wishes, but Jesus Christ, the French Republic, and Apple Inc. have dammed and harnessed the rivers and have learned to shape our deepest anxieties and yearnings. Since new 21st century technologies are likely to make such fictions only more potent, understanding our future requires understanding how stories about Christ, France, and Apple have gained so much power. Humans think they make history, but history actually revolves around the web of stories. The basic abilities of individual humans have not changed much since the Stone Age, but the web of stories has grown from strength to strength, thereby pushing history from the Stone Age to the Silicon Age. Okay, so the history of humanity is really the history of storytelling, and to sum up about 70,000 years of that history in one go. Uh, ancestor spirits and precious seashells and hunting get hunter-gatherers gave way to animist deities and writing and agriculture gave way to priest kings and coins and empires gave way to politicians and credit and industry. And it all depends on the evolution, not of homo sapiens, not on the reality of the physical laws of the universe, but on the stories that we homo sapiens tell each other in order to shape the reality that we find ourselves in. But obviously we are rubbing up against the limits of the old, tired, Enlightenment-era narratives. But that doesn't mean that we're going to discard narrative itself. We're not going to transcend narrative. No, no, no. It means we're going to create new ones. As he goes on to say, in the 21st century, we will create more powerful fictions and more totalitarian religions than in any previous era. A bold prediction, but potentially a not incorrect one. And if people want my take on this whole storytelling idea and how important narratives are to the future of humanity, might I humbly suggest how to save the world in one easy step. Link will be in the show notes, along with everything else, of course. Um, so one long detour about the failure of silly, outdated religion to provide us with meaningful narratives later. We arrive at a long detour about how the narrative of scientific progress is promising us the, the ever-expanding pie of economic growth, which, 
as we all know, is making the weather gods angry. So Yuval posits that our rational leaders are not not being irrational necessarily when they fail to sacrifice all human progress to appease those angry weather gods. No, they may rationally be calculating that they will be able to escape planet Earth, the planet Earth hellhole that is undoubtedly coming, the IPCC tells us so, on a high-tech arc that will save them and their offspring at the expense of the masses. Essentially, well, don't worry, science will figure it out, at least for us rich people. Um, As he goes on to say, even if bad comes to worse and science cannot hold off the deluge, engineers could still build a high-tech Noah's Ark for the upper caste while leaving billions of others to drown. The belief in this high-tech Ark is currently one of the biggest threats to the future of humankind and of the entire ecosystem. Anyway, I just thought it's interesting, the idea of the high-tech Ark that will save the, the elitists and allow the masses to perish. Maybe that's a narrative that has been embedded in our consciousness one way or another. Anyway, uh, crises abound and science provides us high-tech comfort at the cost of what religion used to provide us, which is meaning. Yes, you swap out religion for science and suddenly you have no meaning in the universe. And that brings us to chapter 7, The Storytellers, in which Yuval examines the ideology, the story, the narrative, that against all odds, has prevented societal collapse and total chaos in the wake of the death of God identified by Nietzsche. How is it that we haven't descended into total madness now that, as Harari asserts, we all agree there is no God, no divine plan, no spiritual meaning whatsoever to the world? Why, that's easy. Humanism. The antidote to a meaningless and lawless existence was provided by humanism, a revolutionary new creed that conquered the world during the last few centuries. The humanist religion worships humanity and expects humanity to play the part that God played in Christianity and Islam and that the laws of nature played in Buddhism and Taoism. Whereas traditionally the great cosmic plan gave meaning to the life of humans, Humanism reverses the roles and expects the experiences of humans to give meaning to the great cosmos. According to humanism, humans must draw from within their inner experiences not only the meaning of their own lives, but also the meaning of the entire universe. This is the primary commandment humanism has given us. Create meaning for a meaningless world. And as he goes on to point out, the central religious revolution of modernity was not losing faith in God. Rather, it was gaining faith in humanity. If you say so, Yuval, your lips to God's ears. Um, but of course, that does raise the question, what, what, is, what actually is this liberal humanist religion or religion replacement that saved us from Nietzschean nihilism in the wake of the pronouncement of God's death? Well, good question. And if that is your question, don't worry. Yuval can and will and does go on at great length about that in this part of the book. So you can read about it at, at your leisure. But why, why read about it when you can just get it in five images? That's right. For the benefit of the audio listeners to this audio podcast, uh, I will attempt to describe the humanism in five images section that adorns this book. Uh, the first image is that of someone stuffing a ballot box, and the sub, the uh, caption is, Humanist politics, the voter knows best. 
there is a picture of the people looking, the 1950s couple, obviously buying a commercial television set. Humanist economics, the customer is always right. There's someone gazing at uh, Marcel Duchamp's uh, urinal. And uh, humanist aesthetics, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Marcel Duchamp's fountain is a special exhibition of modern art at the National Gallery of Scotland. There is a image of two lesbians, obviously wedding, uh, lesbian wedding, and they're kissing. Humanist ethics, if it feels good, do it. And then there's a sculpture of Rodin's The Thinker, humanist education, think for yourself. All right, so perhaps you think that is where this is going to end, and this is basically it. Okay, so now we're moving on to, into godhood. Humanity is uh, taking its place. It, it's, the rightful apotheosis is taking place as hum Homo sapiens becomes Homo Deus, and the liberal humanist religious philosophy has enshrined humans as the pinnacle and the utmost. And as he goes on to say towards the end of this chapter, as of 2016, there, when he was writing the book, obviously, there is no serious alternative to the liberal package of individualism, human rights, democracy, etc. Right? This is the pinnacle. But if that's what you think, and if you think that's where he leaves it, you're wrong. This book began by forecasting that in the 21st century, humans will try to attain immortality, bliss, and divinity. This forecast isn't very original or far-sighted. It simply reflects the traditional ideals of liberal humanism. Since humanism has long sanctified the life, the emotions, and the desires of human beings, it's hardly surprising that a humanist civilization will want to maximize human lifespans, human happiness, and human power. Yet the third and final part of the book will argue that attempting to realize this humanist dream will undermine its very foundations by unleashing new post-humanist technologies. The humanist belief in feelings has enabled us to benefit from the fruits of the modern covenant without paying its price. We don't need any gods to limit our power and give us meaning. The free choices of customers and voters supply us with all the meaning we require. What then will happen once we realize that customers and voters never make free choices, and once we have the technology to calculate, design, or outsmart their feelings. If the whole universe is pegged to the human experience, what will happen once the human experience becomes just another designable product, no different in essence from any other item in the supermarket? What indeed will happen when human experience is something designable, uh, like a product in a supermarket? Well, of course, that brings us to the doorstep of part three of the book. Homo sapiens loses control. Can humans go on running the world and giving it meaning? How do biotechnology and artificial intelligence threaten humanism? Who might inherit humankind? And what new religion might replace humanism? Hmm. Interesting. So basically, liberal humanism is wrong because, for example, as he writes, liberals value individual liberty so much because they believe that humans have free will. But, as he goes on to say in great length and great detail, attributing free will to humans is not an ethical judgment. It purports to be a factual description of the world. Although this so-called factual description might have made sense back in the days of John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Jefferson, 
It does not sit well with the latest findings of the life sciences. The contradiction between free will and contemporary science is the elephant in the laboratory, whom many prefer not to see as they peer into the mi their microscopes and fMRI scanners. So you can imagine where this is going. Basically, there is no soul, there is no self, there are only genes and hormones and neurons, and you are either the product of complete strict determinism or some mixture of determinism and randomness, but either way, you have no free will. Stop me if you've heard this before from contemporary philosophers of the World Economic Forum jet set. Anyway, therefore, any ideology like liberal humanism based on the ideal of individual human liberty is doomed. So, um, before I move on, I should note that there is an interesting little passage in here about Sally Addy, or Addy, a journalist for New Scientist, who wrote about an experience she had where she donned a transcranial helmet and entered a battlefield simulator. And with the helmet off in the battlefield simulator, she was a nervous wreck and could barely function. Um, but when she donned the helmet, which delivered these electromagnetic stimulations to various parts of her brain, she, uh, according to her, uh, entered into some sort of range mode that allowed her to act like some sort of super Rambo, picking off her virtual assailants with complete ease, unimaginable precision, total calm. And the whole thing, at any rate, to the extent that it can be just taken at face value, um, at any rate, it does, certainly does sound like something those conspiracy wackadoodles might pick up on as, you know, maybe the CIA and various other alphabet soup agencies, maybe they have, have this technology and maybe it's been employed in some of the more famous mass shooting scenarios of recent years. Anyway, those conspiracy theorists will always theorize about such things. Anyway, read New Scientist for all about the latest on the transcranial helmet. Anyway, uh, then we, of course, get into the useless humans part of the book, which you knew was coming. Basically, AI and robots are going to replace everyone and everything, and we are left with precisely three options. One, humans will lose their economic and military usefulness, hence the economic and political system will stop attaching much value to them. Two, the system will continue to find values in humans collectively, but not in unique individuals. Or three, the system will still find value in some unique individuals, but these will constitute a new elite of upgraded superhumans rather than the mass of the population. All right, so by all means, be skeptical of the AI and robots are coming for your jobs narrative, which we have heard iterations of, essentially, since the Industrial Revolution. Um, but give the devil his due when Yuval wrote, back again, back in 2016, what will be the fate of all those lawyers once... Uh, sophisticated search algorithms can locate more precedents in a day than a human can in a lifetime, and once brain scans can reveal lies and deceptions at the press of a button. You, you may have laughed at that when those words were penned the better part of a decade ago, but as we covered recently on New World Next Week, specifically Swiss Army deploys to protect fat cats at Davos, you might remember in passing I did mention, and it is in the show notes there, China uses artificial intelligence to run courts, supreme justices, cutting judges' typical workload by more than a third and saving billion work hours. Yay. Uh, so yes, this is already being employed in the Chinese court system. It is already being trialed in various ways, as I believe was my story of the year in New World Next Year. I want to say 2020, 2020, 
2020, 2019? I don't remember which year, but it was the story of the year, um, one of those years. So there you go. Uh, it, it's already happening, whether you think it will or not is kind of irrelevant. And perhaps we should return to this discussion in a decade. Do you think any of these technologies are replacing human workers? Anyway, he goes through how AI and robots are going to replace everyone from taxi drivers to lawyers to doctors to you name it. Basically, everyone else. And thus raising the question of what to do with all these superfluous people, his exact words superfluous people. And he suggests maybe the useless class, again, his exact words, useless class, can spend their days in 3D worlds. But then what's the point of living a life like that? And if you are looking for an answer to that obviously rhetorical question, well, you're not going to find one because he doesn't have one. (laughs) I don't know. As you saw in that clip at the beginning of today's episode, um, maybe drugs and video games? Yay. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, Next, he's telling us about how algorithms will be able to monitor us and not only our body biochemically, what's happening, but our brain states to the point that they will know us better than we know ourselves. Again, feel free to be skeptical, but at any rate, he's talking about all the many, many unimaginable wonders that this could bring. For example, the end of pandemics (laughs) and presumably all every other problem on the planet by simply surrendering all of your data about everything you do everything you think, everything you write, everything, your your every breath, your, the blood running through your veins. Sen- surrender all of the data to Google. And he does say Google quite specifically in this context. So what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> anyway, we have already spent way too much time going through all of this twaddle. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that you can really sink your teeth into if you really want to get into it. But let's just cut to the chase, shall we? So... You think that this is going to end up at the doorstep of transhumanism, right? Transhumanism will save us. Just merge with the machines. Well, no, not quite. That isn't where he goes with this. Actually, he doesn't propose transhumanism, or as he calls it, techno-humanism. And I'm not sure why he insists on inventing a new name for it. It's Transhumanism is the, the word that most people use. But anyway, he, he uses techno-humanism. You see, techno-humanism argues that we should use technology to upgrade humanity into homo deus, right? But, but, quote, techno-humanism may end up downgrading humans. The system may prefer downgraded humans, not because they would possess any superhuman knacks, but because they would lack some really disturbing human qualities that hamper the system and slow it down. As any farmer knows, it's usually the brightest goat in the flock that stirs up the most trouble, which is why the agricultural revolution involved downgrading animals' mental abilities. And he talks a little bit about what that means. Anyway, the second cognitive revolution dreamed up by techno-humanists might do the same to us, producing human cogs who, who communicate and process data far more effectively than ever before, but who can hardly pay attention, dream, or doubt. Hmm, sounds Sounds kind of almost where we're at with the TikTok generation, doesn't it? For millions of years, we were enhanced chimpanzees. In the future, we may become oversized ants. And even worse than that, even worse than the fact that 
the transhumanist ideal of upgrading humanity actually might end up downgrading us. There's an internal contradiction with the transhumanist ideal that he points out, at least on the terms that he's framing this in. He says, um, techno-humanism faces an impossible dilemma. It considers the human will to be the most important thing in the universe. Hence, it pushes humankind to develop technologies that can control and redesign the will. After all, it's tempting to gain control over the most important thing in the world. Yet, should we ever achieve such control, techno-humanism would not know what to do with it, because the sacred human would then become just another designer product, a hackable animal, if you will. We can never deal with such technologies as long as we believe that the human will and the human experience are the supreme source of authority and meaning. So what to do? What do we do about this? Well, in short, transhumanism isn't going to cut it, and we need something else. As he closes out this chapter, Hence, a bolder techno-religion seeks to sever the humanist umbilical cord altogether. It foresees a world that does not revolve around the desires and experiences of any human-like beings. What might replace desires and experiences as the source of all meaning and authority? As of 2016, there is one candidate sitting in history's reception room waiting for the job interview. This candidate is information. The most interesting emerging religion is dataism, which venerates neither gods nor man. It worships data. Okay, Yuva, Yuval, Yuval, however you pronounce your name, we're all ears. Tell us all about this new 21st century religion that is going to sever the humanist umbilical cord and deliver us from this paradox of looking for meaning in these flawed, hackable animals that we call humans. Chapter 11. The Data Religion Dataism says that the universe consists of data flows, and the value of any phenomenon or entity is determined by its contribution to data processing. This may strike you as some eccentric fringe notion, but in fact it has already conquered most of the scientific establishment. Dataism was born from the explosive confluence of two scientific tidal waves. In the 150 years since Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, the life sciences have come to see organisms as biochemical algorithms. Simultaneously, in the eight decades since Alan Turing formulated the idea of a Turing machine, computer scientists have learned to engineer increasingly sophisticated electronic algorithms. Dataism puts the two together, pointing out that exactly the same mathematical laws apply to both biochemical and electronic algorithms. Dataism thereby collapses the barrier between animals and machines, and expects electronic algorithms to eventually decipher and outperform biochemical algorithms. For politicians, business people, and ordinary consumers, dataism offers groundbreaking technologies and immense new powers. For scholars and intellectuals, it also promises to provide the scientific holy grail that has eluded us for centuries, a single overarching theory that unifies all the scientific disciplines from literature and musicology to economics and biology. According to dataism, King Lear and the flu virus are just two patterns of data flow that can be analyzed using the same basic concepts and tools. This idea is extremely attractive. It gives all scientists a common language, builds bridges over academic rifts, and easily exports insights across disciplinary borders. 
musicologists, political scientists, and cell biologists can finally understand each other. In the process, dataism inverts the traditional pyramid of learning. Hitherto, data was seen as only the first step in a long chain of intellectual activity. Humans were supposed to distill data into information, information into knowledge, and knowledge into wisdom. However, dataists believe that humans can no longer cope with the immense flows of data, hence they cannot distill data into information, let alone into knowledge or wisdom. The work of processing data should therefore be entrusted to electronic algorithms, whose capacity far exceeds that of the human brain. In practice, this means that dataists are sceptical about human knowledge and wisdom, and prefer to put their trust in big data and computer algorithms. Yes, dataism, the religion that apparently posits that it's not some supernatural deity that is the supreme creator and that gives meaning to the universe and not some human humanist ideology that asserts that the human task is to give meaning to the universe, but a religion that asserts that data is actually the base material from which everything arises and that the supreme goal of all life is to act to facilitate and process this data. So what is this what does this mean? What are the implications of this? Well, one implication is that not only are individual or organisms seen as data processing systems, but also entire societies, such as beehives, bacteria colonies, forests, and human cities. That's right. So we've gone from humans having a soul and a sacred spirit that puts them in in an incredibly important position in the universe to, well, okay, no, there's no soul, and we're just... We're just hackable animals. Well, actually, you're not even a unique individual. You are just a cog in a much bigger machine that is just there for data processing, and that's all. Which puts me in mind of deep thought from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. I'm sure some of the readers out there will remember that, where you'll remember the supercomputer that was created to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything. And after seven and a half million years of deep thought, it comes out with the answer. The answer to life, the universe, and everything. The answer is 42. 42? What does that mean? What? What's the question? <laughs> and so, deep thought cannot give you the question. It was only created to find the answer. The answer is 42, but what's the question is, a, is the question it can't answer. So, it has to design some other incredible supercomputer that will be able to answer the question of what is the question of life, the universe, and everything. And that that computer is the Earth. That's right, a computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself shall form part of its operational matrix. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, Douglas Adams was there first, Yuval. He already, he already thought of this. Yeah, the idea that the Earth is just a giant supercomputer that... Is calculating something. Anyway, anyway, that's, I guess, kind of the idea here, that essentially the Earth, life, everything in the universe is just processing and facilitating the flow of data. Okay. Uh, anywho, the, uh, the, this is the next big thing that everyone's going to be latching onto, according to our human version of deep thought, Yuval Noah Harari. And uh, 
In fact, he summarizes all of history in this way, through this lens. He says, from a dataist perspective, we may interpret the entire human species as a single data processing system, with individual humans serving as its chips. If so, we can also understand the whole of history as a process of improving the efficiency of this system through four basic methods. One, increasing the number of processors. A city of 100,000 people has more computing power than a village of 1,000. Uh, two, increasing the variety of processors. Different processors may use different ways to calculate and analyze data. Using several kinds of processors in a single system may therefore increase its dynamism and creativity. A conversation between a, present, a peasant, a priest, and a physician sounds like a setup to a punchline, may produce novel ideas that would never emerge from a conversation between three hunter-gatherers. Uh, number three, increasing the number of connections between processors. There's a little point in increasing the more number and variety of processors if they are poorly connected to each other. A trade network linking ten cities is likely to result in many more economic, technological, and social innovations than ten isolated cities. And four, increasing the freedom of movement along existing connections. Connecting processors is hardly useful if data cannot just flow freely. Just building roads between ten cities won't be very useful if they are plagued by robbers or if some paranoid despot doesn't allow merchants and travelers to move as they wish. Etc., etc. And he develops all these ideas and talks about them at great length. But what are the holy commandments of this new data deity that we're all supposed to bow down to, I guess? Well, as he says in a chapter subhead, record, upload, share, exclamation mark. That's right. Yes, yes. God won't be happy unless you post what you had for breakfast on Facebook. Um, seriously, Harari posits that for the dataists, apparently, uh, impeding the flow and the processing of data would be the cardinal sin. So recording your private thoughts in a diary that isn't meant to be posted online isn't just weird, as it increasingly, I think, probably is seen as by the up-and-coming generation. It's wrong. It's wrong to have your own personal private experiences that you don't share with anyone. It's wrong to just go out and stare at a sunset and not take photographs of it and not talk about it and put it online and what have you. Um, in fact, even dying would be a sin of sorts under this, under this idea because, well, that robs the universe of more data, the data that you produce just by existing and breathing and having blood flowing through your veins and what have you is data. So you can't rob the universe of that data, so you can't die. <laughs> Or something, I don't know. It is a ridiculous hodgepodge of a mess, but that's for a specific reason, because in case you didn't notice, dataism isn't real. This is not a religion. There are no dataists. No one ascribes to this phony, baloney, made-up religion that Yuval Noah Harari is crafting out of whole cloth here. It's not a thing. Um, he has made the entire thing up, and he talks about it as if this is a thing, as if this is really some sort of religion that some people are positing or that is coming into view or something. But no, no one has ever posited this. There are no card-carrying dataists who are worshipping the data godhead. Um, so when he concludes the book, as he inevitably does, by saying, you know, I know that some of this is crazy and anti-human and doesn't make any sense to us, um, but... He's just letting us know where all of this is heading so that we can decide if this is, you know, if we want to go down this road or that road or what choice we want to make. But he's BSing you with that because I think 
At base, what is really happening is he is a transhumanist or someone who has been put out there to sell the transhumanist agenda by pointing to this even crazier thing that's coming down the line. Yeah, no, not transhumanism. No, no, no. Dataism. Now that's crazy and creepy and weird and we can't even wrap our heads around that. Look at that crazy religion over there that I just made up. You don't want, you don't want to go down that road, right? So, hmm, I guess we got to think of something else. And as I've already said, we cannot put the brakes on the skid towards transhumanism. So I'll just let you come to your own conclusions, guys. <laughs> now you have to conclude transhumanism. <laughs> right? I mean, this is the game that he's playing. But I think fundamentally this speaks to an even more important point. And maybe this is the takeaway for this if you've tuned out everything else that I've been talking about and haven't read the book and don't care. I think this is the main point. I think this is the real purpose of someone like a Yuval Noah Harari and the, 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 the role that they play in the overall structure as the, as the World Economic Forum court jester that is brought out to befuddle and entertain the masses with his uh, bizarre patter. What is it really about? And that's something that I have thought about over the past few years where Harari's name has come up a number of times and I have, of course, not living under a rock. I have definitely started to notice him more and more. And I remember when I first encountered him, it was in the context of an article where he was warning about big data and how much information it was going to be able to collect on you in the near future and what would-be dictator would be able to do with all of that data. And oh my god, we're heading down a, you know, a bad road here, guys. I don't think you know. We're hackable animals and blah, blah, blah. And so in that context, it sounds like, well, maybe, maybe he's warning about this and maybe he doesn't want us to go down that road. But no, no, no. I think what he's really doing out here, here is saying, uh, look out, big data is spying on you in ways that you can barely imagine. And we are hackable animals and people in power will have ultimate power over you very soon. Data, dataism is the new religion, man. Oh no. Yeah, it's totally a thing. And so let's see how we can control this by embracing transhumanism, something along those lines. Anyway, what he is really doing here at base is seeding this entire idea, this entire narrative, because he is right. Narratives do control the world. They are extremely important. So once again, I'll direct you back to uh, how to save the world in one easy step, where I think he, I, I put it more articulately than Harari, if I do say so myself. But he's right about that side of it, but he's trying to implant a certain story, and that's his role in all of this, and that's why he's writing this book, and why he does what he does. He is trying to implant this idea in the conscious, in the public consciousness. Transhumanism is ine inevitable, or it's dataism, and everything is just data, and there's no soul, and we're hackable animals. All of these things that are useless eaters, or useless people, superfluous people, useless class, all of these terms that he is seeding into the public consciousness. He's trying to seed certain ideas into the public sphere so that we end up thinking about them and talking about them and end up heading down that road because that is the road that is being prepared for us. But, okay, let's fight fire with fire. Let's fight dataism with dataism. Let's fight memes with memes. All right, so you all know about how several years ago on the 4chan and whatever forum for out are out there online people were trying to make millhouse a meme and there arose a counter meme that millhouse is not a meme and that in and of itself became a meme basically saying to all of the people that were trying to meme millhouse no we're not going to go with that no millhouse is not a meme well perhaps our role here is to say nope dataism is not a religion and transhumanism is not inevitable and you can 
blow that horn all you want, but we're not listening to that tune. I think that's the real answer. So having said all of this, <laughs> I guess my real takeaway from this exploration of this book is don't read Yuval Harari's books. Don't listen to his lectures. Don't take what he's saying at face value. Don't believe anything that is coming out of his mouth. Best not to listen to what's coming out of his mouth. Because honestly, I think his entire role, his entire raison d'etre, is simply to get these ideas into your head. But don't let it happen. Anyway, having said that, I will stop the performative contradiction of putting these ideas out there just to say, look, you go, and as I always say, this series is called So You Don't Have To. You don't have to go read it. But I always encourage people, read things. Do not take my interpretation at, you know, or anyone else's interpretation. Go read and decide things for yourself. Read whatever you want, whenever you want. But be careful what you do put in your head, because I think there are certain ideas that are meant simply to get you thinking along certain lines, and I think that is Harari's ultimate role. Having said that, that's going to do it for today's exploration. As always, there's a ton of show notes, uh, links that you can explore if you want to find out more about these various things that I've mentioned today. But that's going to do it for today. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future.